tonight you have joined us for a very grim topic. Um, the third in a very grim series we've been doing here at Temple, um, Torah in a Time of Plague. For those of you who have been with us for all three nights, um, wow, uh, you, thank you for being here. Um, I know normally you come to Temple to be uplifted. This is a subject which uh, does pretty much the opposite of that, but um, I find it fascinating. And I actually, throughout this pandemic, have felt very comforted by the fact that throughout Jewish history, um, we have been, our people have been beset by plague, by anti-Semitism, by, um, by death, even here, which we'll talk about tonight in our own backyard, um, by a really horrendous plague. And yet our people have made it on and carried through. Um, and we have that legacy um, and that sense of hope to build on um, as we almost get to year two of COVID-19. So with that, um, let's get started. I'm going to go ahead and share my slides. All right, lovely. So for those of you who joined at our very first session, you'll remember that this um, is not a scare, excuse me, a scary Halloween costume, but this is in fact an Italian plague mask um, devised in the Middle Ages to, uh, by Italian physicians to uh, ward off the plague. Um, not in a superstitious way, but um, this beak, this long beak that looks like a bird's beak, um, is in fact uh, a leather mask that's hollow inside and was filled with all types of herbs and um, other plants. And they actually thought it was an efficacious way of um, kind of filtering out whatever virus or bacteria, not that they had those words back then, um, was causing the plague. And, and as we talked about in our first session uh, together, that it's actually fascinating that um, in in uh, Jewish history, in the Bible, but also in later in uh, Jewish ritual, there's a notion that herbs, that um, burning herbs or incense can is actually an effective way of ridding uh, an area of plague, and the Italians carried on that tradition. Um, not that it served them so well. So tonight we have the grim topic of yellow fever here in our backyard in Memphis. When we think about how many people have died in this country um, in the past almost two years, just this week we hit 800,000 people, which of course is a horrific toll. And those of you um, here and, and watching at home who have lost loved ones to this terrible plague, um, we, we know this is a devastating pandemic. And yet the case fatality rate of COVID-19 is somewhere between one and 10,000 and one in a thousand. Um, the case fatality rate of yellow fever is much higher. Um, it depends on uh, the geographic location. Um, and we'll get more into more of that in a minute, but here um, in the plagues that we're gonna talk about tonight from the 1870s, the case fatality rate was between 30 and 50%, depending on um, uh, depending on which statistics you look at, we don't have perfect data. So the case fatality rate is of the number of people who get it, how many people die. So we think COVID is horrible, and of course it is, but imagine a disease, a plague, in which a third to half of the people who got it died. So as you can see from uh, these grim pictures, um, the first one actually, the one on the top left of your screen, 
Um, if you look, that is actually a, a poor soul from Angola um, just a few years ago who was stricken by yellow fever. And, and you can actually see where yellow fever gets its name. You might not be able to see on this screen, but if you're watching at home, you can see that the whites of his eyes are actually not white at all. They're completely yellow. Um, and so the yellowing of the skin, the jaundice of the skin, but especially the whites of the eyes is where this um, disease gets its name. And um, that's not the only color characteristic of this disease. In fact, um, the, the eyes would turn yellow, but the tongue would turn almost totally black, very dark red or black. Um, and as you can see from the uh, bottom left picture, that gentleman, um, this is uh, an, a rendering of the plague in the Americas. Uh, on the far left, the gentleman is um, not feeling well. The, the second one, um, because it also causes hemorrhaging, you can see that it's, um, he has a bloody nose. The third, blood all over, and he's close to death. Um, doesn't look good. So horrible course of the disease, which is why it has a lot of nicknames in addition to yellow fever, one of which is yellow jack. And um, as you can see, getting yellow jack, it has the grim reaper um, knocking at the door. I, I say that matter of factly, um, even with a hint of a, a joking air, because it's hard to talk about such a terrible, terrible plague without um, uh, a bit of levity, because uh, it's just such a, a horrible topic. I want to give, um, before we get into the actual origin of the plague here, I want to give you a, a brief description of what this, um, what this plague looked like um, in, in a newly infected person. <clears throat> this is, by the way, I'll, I'll give you the provenance of this in a moment. He says, it began with a seemingly harmless mosquito bite. Three to six days later, the victim ran a fever of 102 to 104 degrees. The pulse became rapid, but later slowed. The face was flushed, the eyes sunken, the tongue ring ringed in red and furred at the center. Soon the nausea, vomiting, and constipation began. The skin took on a yellow tinge and the vomit darkened. The smell was unmistakable. Many patients died within a week, the latest victims of the yellow fever. So we have a quite horrible plague, um, but how did it get here in Memphis? I want to recommend, and this is actually the, the way that I first heard about yellow fever, although growing up here in Memphis, I'd always known that it, was, it had happened. Um, I knew we have a, a section of our cemetery that has many yellow fever victims, many people who died um, from yellow fever there remains or at least their tombstones, we're not totally sure. Um, I talked with Russ Campbell about this, our, our cemetery uh, cemeterian, and um, he is unsure if uh, we have the remains, all the remains, perhaps some of the remains, but we certainly have the tombstones that were um, reinterred from our old cemetery on Bass to our new cemetery, um, which isn't so new anymore, it's over 100 years old, uh, but um, that we still have to this day. So, oh, I, but recently I rediscovered or, or learned quite a bit more about this um, plague from a book called The American Plague uh, by Molly Caldwell Crosby, who writes about um, the history of this plague in Memphis, a little bit about New Orleans, which is where it came from. I'll come to that in a minute. 
um, but also, which I found fascinating about um, how they found the cure to this plague. But before they found a cure, they actually didn't even know where it came from. Um, there was germ theory was a newly emerging field. So they thought maybe it came from filth or from, um, yeah, filth. We'll talk in just a minute about how Memphis was a very filthy place in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, but in fact, Walter Reed, who we now know as uh, the, the namesake of Walter Reed uh, Military Hospital um, outside of DC, he, he actually was an army doctor who was sent on behalf of the US government to Cuba to find um, the provenance of this, this disease. I'm not gonna get into all of it. It's a wonderful book that talks about it. Um, but he, along with his team, um, with a, a local scientist named Charles Finlay, discovered that it actually was from mosquitoes, the Aedes aegypti mosquito, in fact, and um, that it wasn't transmitted person to person through the air like COVID-19, but in fact, a mosquito would bite a, an infected person, or um, in fact, they, they believe it came from a primate that was infected originally somewhere in Africa. We'll get to that in one moment. And then because the mosquito carried the blood um, that it sucked out of one person and then bit another, that transmission of blood carrying the virus is what um, transmitted from person to person. So totally different vector than we're used to right now with COVID-19. Um, but you can imagine those of you who've lived through a Memphis summer, um, this was a, a very uh, ripe place for uh, this plague to, to fester or to thrive. So how did the plague get here in the first place? Well, I'm just going to change the slide because it's, I'm sorry that I made you look at that for so long. Um, like I said, just a moment ago, doctors and scientists believe that the plague, you know what, while I'm, while I am uh, not referencing the slide, I will just uh, talk. So uh, this plague originated in Africa. People believe in primates and in fact, infected people in Africa for many, many hundreds of years before um, coming to America. People think that the African populations were not devastated the way that they were in America because it had been around for so many years that they developed a, a, an immunity, an immunity to the disease. But when Europeans and then later Americans started bringing slaves from Africa to North America, they brought with them yellow fever. They brought with them uh, mosquitoes um, who then transmitted um, or, or people that were sick and then mosquitoes from over here. Um, th there were different kind of cycles. But as slaves were brought to America, um, to New Orleans or to the Caribbean and then infected people who later on went to New Orleans. Um, that was the primary way that yellow fever got to America. We know that New Orleans is just one riverboat ride um, up the uh, or down the Mississippi from us. Um, what New Orleans in this period was the largest city in the South. Uh, Memphis by 1870 was actually the second largest city in the South, bigger than Atlanta, Nashville, um, we were doing quite well before yellow fever, but um, it, it caused outbreaks in the 1850s, um, not just in the South, but later in Philadelphia. 
but um, I want to focus on the one in a little bit. We'll talk about New Orleans, but mainly here in Memphis. So I'm going to share my screen once more. And we will talk about um, the first major plague of yellow fever in Memphis, which happened in 1873. So um, we have the, we know most of what we know, especially about the Jewish, um, the impact on the Jewish community of yellow fever from a gentleman named A.E. Franklin, um, spelled F-R-A-N-K-L-A-N-D, as you can see on the slide who um, was a past president of Temple Israel, um, at that time called B'nai Israel or Children of Israel. Um, he was, at the time of yellow fever, not only a past president, but he was the warden of our cemetery. And so um, any burial that took place in the cemetery, he was involved with. He, um, we don't know if he actually dug the graves. They probably contracted uh, or, or hired someone to do that. But um, I, we are very blessed to have, and I'm sorry that I'm sharing my screen and then unsharing, but we are very blessed here. To have the original cemetery register from this time period. It's, it's actually quite heavy. I'm going to lift it up for you so you can see. And those of you who are, who are here in person, you can actually come take a look. Um, after class, you can come up a little closer. This is the original cemetery register from that period. And you can see um, in A.E. In a. Franklin's own hand, um, he actually had marvelous handwriting, the entries for essentially every person that died uh, while he was warden. Unfortunately, which I'll show you in a moment, during the, this plague, the amount of people, the frequency with which people were dying far exceeded the normal rate. Um, and why don't we go ahead and take a quick look at that. So I'm going to take you all the way here. So if you can see, um, this is a picture I took uh, just earlier today of this register. But you can see that um, all of these deaths occurred 1873, 1873, October 1st, October 5th, October 7th, October 8th. Within a, a couple weeks span, this entire page was filled up. And you can see her on the right. Um, this is the uh, disease at, at this point, um, which is actually just a fascinating piece of history. Um, people didn't die so much of old age. So the, what we might say is cause of death today, um, they, they didn't call it that. Why? Because they figured most everybody would die of some one disease or another. And if you look at disease, every last one of these people is yellow fever. Um, I'll actually show you um, a couple of things that I want to highlight on this one. You can see that uh, this is the, uh, it says remarks on the top right. Um, you can see here, remarks on the top right. You can see that all of these were um, conducted. This is the officiant of the funeral. All of these were conducted by um, Reverend Dr. Rabbi Samfield, who, whom we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, a couple were uh, conducted by Franklin, and a couple were conducted or officiated by the assistant warden of the cemetery. 
I want to highlight one other thing, which is very common to this pandemic, which is, um, sorry, epidemic, not pandemic, um, which is that very oftentimes one person in the family would get it, they would die. And then within a week, many, many other family members would die as well. So you can see that, see if I can um, see right here, Miss, uh, this person, I only have this page, is the son of Lewis Meyer um, and Miss, uh, Mrs. Jacob Meyer. So both um, the wife of Jacob Meyer and their son passed away uh, within just a couple of days of each other. And this was uh, totally the norm. It's, it's hard to believe. Uh, thinking about our lives today, we're so far removed from tragedy on that scale that it's almost unfathomable. But imagine for a second, your, your wife, your, your kids, your parents all dying within, um, within days of one another, you not knowing if you're gonna be next. Um, oftentimes you were next. And um, this you can imagine resulted in quite a few um, orphans. I'll get into the numbers in a few minutes, orphans, widows. And this was before there was a robust uh, social safety net by the government. So, and we'll talk about this in just a moment also, but part of the role of the Jewish community in this period was to create, um, thankfully, different benevolent organizations that cared for and protected the neediest in society, the orphans, the widows, um, and, all, and actually ministered to and tended to all of the people um, who were sick. So if we go back here um, to A.E. Franklin, who, like I said a minute ago, was the warden of the cemetery, past president, very important lay leader at Temple. The reason we know so much about the Jewish history is because he wrote um, both for a, um, a biography and a history, but also as a report to B'nai B'rith, who played a huge role in raising money from, all, from Jewish communities from all over the country to send help both to Memphis and to New Orleans for this um, epidemic. Uh, he wrote as a report to them this very detailed history of what happened during the 1873 pandemic. And you can, um, I actually did not read much of it because, and I, I can pull you up a PDF. Actually, I'll go ahead and do that. Pull you up a PDF. You can see that, in fact, it's not the easiest thing to read. So I must, while I'm bringing up the screen, I must uh, share my gratitude, immense gratitude, to the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati that is affiliated with my rabbinical school here, Union College. Um, they have many of these documents, the originals, um, and also the personal history and personal files, in addition to this, uh, this book or this report of A.E. Franklin. And so they, they scanned this whole book, this whole report, and you can see that it would be very nice, ooh, it would be very nice if uh, the archives would hire an intern to uh, figure out what the heck all of this says and type it up in Microsoft Word, because uh, to my eye, it's very difficult to read. Uh, even though his handwriting is is so lovely. Uh, but thankfully, we have a report on on this report from a, a, a contemporary scholar named Alan M. Kraut. And um, I want to 
read you a little bit of what Alan Kraut has to say about suppose somebody who was a true hero, um, who ministered, not only did he write in the forms, but as you'll learn in a moment, he was front and center, not only burying people, but tending to the living as well. So let's see what Kraut says. But before we see um, how great he was, Kraut starts his, this article near the beginning of the article and says that because of its prominence as a commercial hub, Memphis had a significant Jewish community numbering 2,100 before the Civil War. During the war, the city's Jews were loyal to the Confederacy. One fiercely loyal partisan was A.E. Franklin, a partner in a firm of auctioneers and commission merchants dealing in real estate, quote, Negroes, merchandise, furniture, groceries in city and country. Um, and Franklin later wrote, it was quite natural that we sided with the, with the section with the side that was our home. But I think it is important to say, you, we're going to talk tonight about him as really a hero, really as a, a, a miracle worker who put himself at risk and put his life on the line to help people who were in the worst place, spiritually, physically imaginable, and that he was also a Confederate. And that's something that is part of his legacy and part of who he was. So what about Franklin? Um, one thing that I think is fascinating is that the Board of Health was recommended, and, and this was more so in the later pandemic epidemic in 1878, but also true of this one. The Board of Health recommended um, slowing down commerce and a quarantine. What does that remind you of? But at the time, um, many of the city's business leaders, like I said a few minutes ago, Memphis was a burgeoning city, a fast-growing economy. The city's business leaders did not want to interrupt or disrupt their commerce in order to um, potentially stop the epidemic. In fairness, or to play devil's advocate, they didn't know at that point, and potentially the debate is still out here too, um, or still open here too, the jury's still out, mix my metaphors. <laughs> uh, how, to what extent does that work? To what extent does that stop disease? But A.E. Franklin um, was, held no punches in his criticism of the business leaders who, um, who didn't want to give up any, any week or day of earnings to potentially save lives. He said, um, because the merchant princes were afraid it would kill trade, they doubted at last delirium, they doubted at last delirium, hemorrhages, vomit, um, as it stared them in the face, and um, held the press on buttonhold for, and said, for God's sakes, do not publish anything. Keep it out of the papers or our trade is ruined. So uh, history repeats itself. History rhymes. We, a debate that raged in over a century ago, century and a half ago, um, we still haven't quite figured out. We still have these same issues um, in our handling of pandemics today. Um, he, Franklin, it says, was especially outraged by the indifference to the suffering of the poor. Um, he says, 
criticizing the, the business people, what was the life of the poor to them compared to their money making and money getting? So even though he was a businessman himself, he had no patience for um, people who only had regard for money. Franklin was one of the co-founders with Rabbi Samfield and other Memphis leaders of an organization called the Hebrew Hospital Relief Association. Um, he was the president and a gentleman named Louis Wexler was its secretary. We'll come back to Louis Wexler in just a moment. Um, and Franklin was responsible for raising funds. He was the primary fundraiser from getting funds from the B'nai B'rith from all around the country, from the Masonic lodges from around the country, from, um, and from th this organization that he started um, called the HHRA, the Hebrew Hospital Relief Association. And finally, he was um, the secretary of the Citizens Executive Committee um, of the Howard Association, which the Howard Association, for those of you uh, steeped in epidemic history, was a, an English nonprofit from Britain that was founded to send support and, and volunteers anywhere in the world where an epidemic struck. And he was involved in that chapter here in Memphis. So I want to read you a little bit about what Franklin said about our dear Rabbi Samfield. Um, describing his work in 1873, he says, even at the dying bed of the prostitute Jew or Gentile made no difference to him. He was everywhere. Even at the dead hour of midnight, you could have found you could have found Rabbi Samfield amidst the lurid glare of the pine torch reciting the burial service while the rain poured down in torrents and the sobs of remaining friends broken by retracing our steps from the resting place of the dead. This I want to highlight is, is, is true of both Franklin and Rabbi Samfield. It becomes clear from his, his diary, from his report, um, that Franklin himself worked from five o'clock in the morning until midnight most days, five o'clock in the morning until midnight. Um, in addition to the distributions of funds, he labored directly among the sick, many of whom were the poorest of the poor. Um, at one point, 135 individuals were sick that he tended to and required daily visits for weeks. Some of the ill were afraid of doctors, and you can imagine why this was a time they thought bloodletting was potentially a cure, so you can understand why they were afraid of doctors. Um, and they resisted efforts to go to the infirmary, and they had to be persuaded or um, forced to get treatment. One of the people that they trusted was, um, who was not a doctor, but was a respected person in the community, was Franklin. So Franklin himself, um, survived the 1873 pandemic, but not before he lost a son. So I want to talk just for a moment about his son. So many of you might have seen this pillar at our cemetery. And this pillar is actually not to Franklin himself, but to his son who died as, um, oh, this one died at 11 years old. And he wanted to be, his name was um, J. Walter, the third son of, um, of A.E. Franklin, Abraham Franklin, and his wife, Sally. And he died on October 28th, 1873, age 11 years old. 
his well, son. Well, we didn't say we didn't see that rabbi one day, and Couldn't followed the doctors around, even though he knew it was at risk to himself, to help the doctors. Um, a. E. Franklin himself apparently warned his son, but respected even at a young age his choice to want to help, and um, it cost him his life. So this poor little boy died um, helping other people. Um, one other point I want to just touch on before, before um, we move on from Franklin, which he's totally intertwined in the story, so we'll come back and forth to him. But in his um, memoir, he mentions that he eulogized. He actually, um, even though he wasn't a rabbi, he gave the eulogy at the funeral for the gentleman I mentioned one moment ago, Louis Wexler who was 29 years old when he died. He was considered to be an up-and-coming leader um, in, in the Memphis Jewish community. He, people thought he was the future of the Memphis Jewish community. And he, like I said, he was the secretary of the HHRA, the Hebrew Hospital, what was it? Uh, Resource Association. And um, he died at the age of 29. So let's see really quickly. And I'm, I'm not going to read the eulogy, but it, it really is very... Um, heartrending, of course. But if you look here, not sure if those of you um, here can see, but I'm just going to come. Well, I'll stay here. So here, right here in the middle of the page, we have Lewis Wexler. Oh, excuse me. He was 28 years old. But you see preceded him in death just by um, the, may, maybe mere hours was his infant son. Um, or infant child that was two months, let's say two weeks or two months old. So really just unimaginable um, that this future leader of Memphis and um, his son uh, died the same day. Imagine being the rabbi during this period. Imagine spending um, countless days, every day without pause, burying two, three, four, five people in one day, entire families. Um, that is what this true hero, um, Rabbi Max Sandfield, did over the course of two epidemics, although um, he was much more involved in the 1873 epidemic than he was in the later epidemic in 1878. Um, I want to read you a little bit about his bio. So he was born, and by the way, this bio comes from a rabbinic thesis from a rabbi who just got ordained two years ago. Her name is Bailey Romano. She grew up in, I believe, Slidell, Louisiana, and came here to Memphis for undergrad, went to Rhodes, and that's where she first heard about um, yellow fever and the history with Memphis. She then went on to HUC. To, to the reform movement's rabbinical school and wrote her thesis on rabbis um, providing spiritual care and leadership during times of epidemic. So she talks a lot about, um, in addition to Rabbi Samfield, a rabbi from New Orleans, uh, Rabbi Gut, uh, Gutheim, James K. Gutheim, and um, they had a parallel career. Rabbi Gutheim was a little older, had uh, earlier pandemics because he was in New Orleans, 
but their trajectory and also the way that they helped their communities was very intertwined and interrelated. Um, as a bit of background on Rabbi Godham, he actually served three congregations in New Orleans. One that we know um, today, Toro, and also another one that we know today, Sinai. Uh, the other one that was called, um, I think, Children of the Diaspora, or uh, I'd have to, I'll have to check. But um, he actually served three synagogues, one Orthodox, uh, or maybe two, one, it's kind of unclear what it was at that point. And then um, Toro was reform. So Rabbi Samfield, though, on the other hand, was born in Bavaria in Germany in 1844. And his dad was a rabbi, but um, never practiced, um, and instead was a public school teacher. He immigrated, Samfield, our Rabbi Samfield, immigrated to the United States in 1867, and he then, it's unclear if, it's unclear where he received rabbinic ordination, um, but soon after, um, th there is a thought that he, um, he definitely studied rabbinics in Germany, but it's unclear where exactly he got ordination, but in 1867, he moved to the U.S. and became the rabbi in Shreveport, Louisiana, so not far um, from us and also from New Orleans. But he, at a very young age, became the head rabbi of Temple Israel. He was... <laughs> 1871, he became Temple's new rabbi, and he was born in 44. So what does that make him? 27. Thank you for the quick math. 27. So kind of hard to imagine that 27-year-old being the senior rabbi, but those were different times. Um, he, when he arrived in Memphis, and uh, this is the last thing I want to say about his bio, uh, the, the, the Jews in the city were very divided among religious lines or across religious lines, reform, orthodox, et cetera. But um, as soon as he came, within one year, the membership of Temple Israel or Children of Israel doubled, more than doubled. Um, and they originally only hired him for one year because he was so young and they were so unsure of his potential. He ended up serving for over 40 years. He, he actually might be our longest tenured rabbi, senior rabbi. I'd have to check, but I think he might be. So what happened with Rabbi Samfield during, um, during the 1873 epidemic? Well, let me read you one account of, oh, actually, let's read this account from, um, this was published after his death in, I believe this was the American Israelite, which was the main um, American Jewish newspaper at the time. And the text is obviously very small. You can see on the, on the right side of our screen, that is his um, tombstone here in buried in the Temple Israel Cemetery in Memphis. Um, let's zoom in on that and see what that says. Um, during the terrible yellow fever scourges of 1873 and 1878, when Memphis was being depopulated by disease and hundreds were fleeing to other cities with their families, Dr. Samfield stood by his post. His faithfulness and courage and big-hearted humanity were proven during these epidemics in this city. His devotion to the sick and destitute his constant services to the dead and dying, regardless of creed, sex, or race, 
with the most sublime forgetfulness of self, place him in the the phalanx of the never-to-be-forgotten heroes of the dreadful scourges with which the city has been afflicted. Besides ministering to the sick, to the destitute and the dying at the risk of his life, he officiated at the last sad rites in the little Jewish cemetery on Bass Avenue. That's our um, original temple cemetery. And many a, a long day and night he remained at the burial ground from one sunrise to another. And many burial was held by torchlight. Can you imagine he and um, A.E. Franklin and whoever else was helping them buried people in the middle of the night by torchlight, offering words of comfort to the families um, and often burying people in such haste that their graves were unmarked because more people were dying and dying every day um, and they just didn't have the time. But he made sure to the best of his abilities that each person uh, was buried with dignity and honor and was remembered uh, by their loved ones. The, uh, this eulogy of his continues. Um, the Memphis Appeal in an issue of the summer of 1873 makes this mention of the rabbi's unselfish sacrifice. The ep- epidemic for which the past three weeks has been raging in our midst has been noticeably felt, noticeably felt among the Israelites of our city. Many of their families have been visited by the scourge and their sorrow is great. Last evening, a most solemn scene was witnessed at their burial ground on Bass Avenue. It was the occasion of the burial of three of their faith citizens of our happy city, Mr. A. Joel, his son, and Simon Loeb. All these had died of the yellow fever yesterday morning, but it being the Jewish Sabbath, they were not interred until the night after the ending of their Sabbath. Two pine torches lit up the scene, and by the faint light of a lantern, Rabbi Samfield, in a most feeling and solemn manner, read the burial service. It was a sight never to be forgotten. The prayers of the noble rabbi, who has, during all the sickness, notably and faithfully performed the duties of his office, not alone to those of his faith, but in the hut of the lowly, in the infected district, has he daily given um, consolation to all, regardless of their creed. And he's met a heartfelt response in the breast of those present. Um, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but one thing that was really quite special about Rabbi Samfield is that he tended not only to the Jews, but also to, to, to black people, which was very rare for a white person or a white minister in that time, also to Christians, and which was also quite rare, um, almost unheard of at that time. But that being said, I want to say that um, there were a number of Catholic nuns and other priests or, or Christian leaders who came to Memphis from outside the city out of the goodness of their heart and out of a sense of religious devotion and cared for um, people of all faith backgrounds. So I want to make clear he wasn't unique in that, but it was certainly rare for him to have tended all of those people. And um, it was, I'm quoting from this article, it was during these terrible days in Memphis that Dr. Samfield was designated as the little man with a big heart. So during this time, Dr. Samfield, or, or he went by Dr. Samfield in those days, um, but Rabbi Samfield had seven children, uh, four sons and three daughters. In the 1873 epidemic, two of them died. 
he went on, he and his wife went on to adopt two orphans um, after the epidemic um, to care for, you know, the just two of the many, many dozens of orphans uh, left, left alone in after this scourge. I want to share with you a couple of other um, a couple of other, here we go, um, characterizations and stories about Rabbi Samfield. This is from um, Selma Lewis's A Biblical People in the Bible Belt, the Jewish community of Memphis, Tennessee, um, from the 1840s to the 1960s. She talks, uh, she has a whole chapter on the yellow fever. Um, and she provides, uh, I'll first give you a, a couple of statistics before getting into the details. So um, actually, sorry, let me switch pages one more time. Got a lot, a lot of different documents here. Okay, uh, first a few statistics. So in the 1873 epidemic, there were 5,000 people who were thought to have gotten the fever. More than 2,000 died within two months. So, um, but many people thought that it was about 2,500, that in the haste of burial, many people were just forgotten and not counted. So potentially half of the people who got yellow fever um, died in this first ep epidemic. Um, but a little bit about the Jewish statistics. Franklin calculated based on the burials at the reform at our, our cemetery and Orthodox cemetery that 94 Jews had died. So imagine a very small community of just a couple thousand Jews, 94 dying in two months, hard to fathom. Um, that's at least, at least two funerals, two to three funerals every day for two months. Um, and leaving behind 31 widows, 11 widowers and 181 orphans. 181 orphans. Hard to believe. Um, the, the death count in this and in the 1878 epidemic were lower, what was lower than could have otherwise be, because if you could afford to, you left. Anybody of means, um, basically half the population in both, in both um, epidemics left. Many of them went to St. Louis, especially the Jews. Um, and it makes it all the more remarkable that um, both Franklin and Rabbi Samfield, who certainly could have afforded to leave, um, stayed in the city. The, the Jewish community, though, was so devastated after the, after the epidemic that they couldn't afford to pay Rabbi Samfield his back wages. Um, it took them actually years to be able to pay him what he was owed. So all of that time he was working for free. Just really hard to uh, fathom. One thing that bef before we go on to the 1878 epidemic, I, I want to share th two things. First thing is one reason why it was so devastating for, for the Jews was because such a large percentage of the Jews at that time were immigrants. Many of the people who, and, and especially black people at this time, were thought to have a higher, um, a higher immunity 
level of immunity to, to the disease and died at lower rates. But because such a huge percentage of um, Jews were immigrants, either first or second generation, they had no built-in immunity, no genetic immunity, um, no history in their childhood of getting yellow fever and surviving as, as many people who live in the South did um, that weren't Jewish, that grew up there. So we had no immunity, the Jewish community had no immunity and died at a very high rates, as was true of other immigrant populations at the time. Um, the other thing that I found very interesting and also I'm not sure what to make of is multiple scholars talked about the fact that because of the outreach of Franklin and Samfield and the other Jews who were there at the time, caring not just for the Jewish community, but also for um, Christians and, and Blacks and whites and, and everyone, that they historians believe is one of the reasons why in the years following, the, the relations between the Jews and the broader community were so strong because they built a level of trust um, these, the Jews were outsiders. They were, you know, many of them immigrants. And yet they, because of the outreach and the work that they did in the community, um, there became a level of trust that wasn't true, wasn't as true in other places in America until much later. So I, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. I'm certainly not a historian, but um, interesting take. And, and some people, Alan Kraut included, says that in addition to Franklin's motivations, um, just out of the goodness of his heart to help, that perhaps he was also doing this uh, for the good name of the Jewish community. To talk about the 1878 epidemic, I want to quote a little bit from this wonderful book that if you don't own, um, it's out of print, but you can buy it on eBay. I wish we had more to sell in the bookstore. Uh, this is written by Judy, our very own Judy Ringle. It is Children of Israel, the story of Temple Israel from 1854 to 2004, uh, a whole book about this place and our history. And it's really a masterpiece, not only of beauty, um, as you can see from the cover, but also of scholarship. And we're very indebted as a community for Judy's incredible work. Um, but I want to read you a little bit about um, the 1878 pan, uh, epidemic. So as bad as the 1873 epidemic was, and um, in just a moment before we stop, to give you a sense of the just the scale of the epidemic, I want to actually show you a few pages directly out of the um, cemetery register, because when you see that up close, it's really, um, it really hits home. But it actually was a relatively mild epidemic, because the first case was in mid-September, and it was only six weeks until the, the first frost. And because the epidemic, because um, yellow fever is carried by mosquito, the, the mosquitoes and their eggs, as we all know, living in Memphis, they die um, during the frost. And so that generally marks the end of um, a yellow fever outbreak. So because in 1873, there were only six weeks of, um, before the frost, it was actually a relatively mild epidemic. 1878 happened much earlier in the summer, um, depending on um, different reports, probably sometime in July um, was when the first case emerged in Memphis. So the death toll in 1878 was uh, much bigger. Half of the city evacuated left within a week 
Within one week, the first week of hearing that yellow fever is back, just five years after um, the, the first epidemic, half the city left. They remember what it was like. Um, of the people who remained, it's thought that 85% of them contracted it and that 5,150 people died. So of the 20,000 citizens who stayed, 85% got yellow fever, they think, and um, a quarter of those people died. Um, really, really grim statistics. One thing that is true of both Franklin and Samfield is that they both left the city during 1878. We're not, we're not positive um, where Rabbi Samfield was. Maybe he spent some time here, but we know that he was gone for a conference um, of the National Jewish Organizations. He was actually uh, on the board of governors at Hebrew Union College. He was the vice president and the president of the Southern Conference of Rabbis. He was a very um, important rabbi, not just in Memphis, but around the country. He was at a conference um, in, I believe, Minneapolis during the beginning of the summer. And we don't know for sure where he was, but there's no indication that he came back. Um, and there is, we do know that later he went to St. Louis and was part of a group of um, refugees who left the city. We the first indication we have of him being back in Memphis is in December of that year, holding a memorial service for those who died. Franklin also fled the city. Um, it's hard to know after their heroics in 1873 what drove them to not want to be in Memphis. Um, but it's it's also hard to blame them. They both lost children in the first epidemic, and maybe they just didn't have it in them. Uh, anymore to, to go through that again. We do know that both of them raised money to support the community while they were gone, um, but they weren't nearly as directly involved in the second one as they were in the first. I want to just close by um, two things. The first, I want to show you um, a little bit more of this really tremendous artifact that we have. Oh, share my screen with you. So this is the cemetery register. This is actually uh, during the Civil War, which is quite another interesting piece of history, um, but that's for a different talk. Let's find where it begins in 1873. So you can see, Sorry if I'm making you dizzy, I'll tell you, if you wanna close your eyes, I'll tell you when I get there. You can see right here, okay, we're here. In beginning in, um, well, still in August, if you see right here, August of, this is 1873, people are still dying from summer complaints and congestion. Um, pneumonia, um, I'm not sure what that says. Um, there's a stillborn, um, but starting in on September 14th, every one of these poor souls died of yellow fever. So this is just um, 
goes all the way to this page is October, page after page of people um, just dying of yellow fever, as you can see over here on the right, yellow fever, yellow fever, yellow fever. Um, people age, aged from, this is, um, as we saw before, Lewis Wexler's um, uh, child to, here's Lewis Wexler himself, um, two months, or sorry, two weeks old. I can see that here. Um, all the way to 65 uh, people of, of all ages. This one, this disease did not discriminate um, nearly as much as COVID. Um, and you can imagine that um, th this is 1873, ends, here's another page of it, ends in November. Um, here's the last one of yellow fever, thank God. Um, so just like that, when the frost came, November 2nd, Sunday, November 2nd, Louis Meyer, 19 years old, um, from Poland, uh, this is his address, lived on Poplar, looks like right downtown, 129 Poplar Street. Um, and he died. He was, if only, you know, he had made it another few days, uh, another week, the frost would have ended or would have come and the plague would have ended. Uh, so I could show you 1878, but it's unfortunately a lot more of the same. But one thing I do want to share that, that I find a bit of hope um, or a bit, definitely a bit of meaning in, is that here at Temple Israel, we are very lucky. To have as not only this sad artifact, but this artifact, this is Rabbi Samfield's desk, put my computer down. This is Rabbi Samfield's desk given to him by the confirmation class of 1876. So people, kids that saw his heroism in the 1873 epidemic, kids that were his children of this congregation, um, saw what he did for their community and gifted him this desk um, in 1876. And I, I found it very special and very meaningful that all of my preparation for this class today, tonight, I did sitting at his desk, um, which we still have upstairs um, in the rabbinic study at Temple Israel. And after so many years, um, it's the, the pain and the, the darkness that he went through is, is unfathomable to us. But as a rabbi who is lucky enough to, to be in his pulpit, um, I find it just incredibly meaningful um, to try to do one fraction of the good work that he did, um, and hopefully in better times uh, to carry on his wonderful um, and really sacred legacy. Um, so thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm happy to uh, stay on for a few minutes for any questions or comments that you have. Um, thank you so much for being here. May this next year ahead be the end of this plague. May we know none of the terror, none of the horror as in days past. I wish everyone a very happy new year um, and take care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hi, Rabbi Dreyfus. Yes. 
I saw that th I see that there's a participant by the name of Judy Ringel. Is she the author of the book Children of Israel? Judy Ringel, if you are on, um, which thank you for it's such a kavod, such an honor to have you here. Uh, yes, Jude, that is this Judy Ringel who did such tremendous scholarship. Thank okay. you so much, Judy. Nice, thank you. Hi, hi, Miss Ringel. Yes, uh, hi, I'm here. <laughs> I, I'm Gregory Miles, and um, I purchased a copy of the book and would like to meet you in person, if I may, <laughs> if you would, and have you to autograph. Uh, my copy so it would, be, it would be my honor how nice okay all right thank you 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 can find me through the temple they know how to reach me okay thank you so much thank you yeah gregory um i'm i'm happy if you want to be in touch with me i'm happy to make that happen okay yes and uh i purchased a, the copy a copy of it um on it was on ebay it, it, uh -huh. they do have copies and I got it for sixteen dollars and forty nine cents. Oh, so. a bargain! That is a bargain. <laughs> and that Judy, you don't get any of those royalties. <laughs> would be nice. It would be nice if she could get the six, you know, the money. <laughs> yeah. But I would love to meet you in person and uh, uh, and and have you to autograph the book for me, please. Fine, I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Any any other thoughts, questions, um, things on your mind? Hi, Jeff. Yes, Linda. This, um, this is absolutely so fascinating. I took several pages of notes. I mean, most of us did not know anything about this history. We knew, we knew that these epidemics were here, but we didn't know some of these details and especially related to our temple and our, you know, and our, our Jewish people. And so, and that was really fascinating. And then the other thing I was noticing on that register where most everything was, had passed, everyone had passed away by the yellow fever, um, but it said congestion, and, and I put this in the chat, but it's, it said congestion, a number of the people said it said congestion. Now, I don't know this to be true, but it could have meant congestive heart failure, which is what we call heart failure these days, but through many years, it was congestive heart failure. And that might account for some people who are a little bit older. Hmm. Um, I that's a so great. I, you know, I, I don't know that. I don't know that for a fact, but I've worked in the medical, medical career for years, and and um, that's very possible. What that what that meant versus versus you know you feeling the cold coming on. Thank you, thank you, Linda. Linda. Yes. Uh, okay, this is Greg again. Um, yes. Having taught history, high school history, um, I just would like to say that uh, your statement that is true. When you uh, a lot of times when you see the word congestion, uh, it meant congestion heart failure at that time. Hmm. Okay, thank you. thank you. You're welcome, Judy. Were you about to say something? Well, there are a number of things I could add. Um, one of them was that um, interestingly, I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. There was when I was growing up a Jewish orphanage called Belfair. Um, and I found out when I was researching uh, the information about the yellow fever um, that after that Rabbi Samfield was a, uh, an officer or a trustee of Belfair, this Jewish, what was a Jewish orphanage in those days in Cleveland and another one in New, in New Orleans. 
because and the reason was that he sent Jewish orphans, children in Memphis who were orphaned because of yellow fever, he sent some of them to the Jewish orphanage in Cleveland and some to the Jewish orphanage in New Orleans. So I just thought it was interesting that as um, as long as, as I had grown up there, I never, I knew it was a Jewish orphanage, but I never knew that it was populated so heavily at the time by children who were orphaned by the yellow fever in Memphis. So oh. it was just a little interesting tidbit. Um, and the other thing I, I wanted to mention was that I was so moved by was reading an excerpt of, Rab or well, I concluded in the book, an excerpt from Rabbi Samfield's first sermon um, in Memphis, where he said, if I can find it, hold on just a minute. Um, uh, he said, um, let's see. Um, yeah, where, where can I find it? Uh, he said, brethren of the congregation of B'nai Israel, I am now yours. The, the vigor of my youth, the faculties of my soul, the energies of my mind, name my very life, I consecrate to your moral welfare and to the welfare of Judaism and humanity. He went on to say, I will share your joys and sorrows. Your children shall be my children. Let us be a band of brothers who, without contention, strive to secure peace as the greatest blessing here on earth. That's it. Wow. And it, it, it struck me so when I read it, because wow. just a few years after he gave that sermon, he was indeed sharing the sorrows of his of his flock, of his, his congregation. So, you know, I was very moved by it. This is wonderful. Wonderful. And Rabbi... Uh, this is Beth. I just want to thank you for this uh, episode of, of the story. And it, it, it really is fascinating because now we don't realize it at this moment, maybe, but we're going to go down in history also. So start writing <laughs> as, as our rabbi. Mm. Yes, yes, you guys have a real big story to tell of this epidemic that happened to us. And maybe Judy Ringel can add some of her wonderful stuff in it and what she knows. That would be wonderful. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Bess. And, and I want to just extend a huge thank you to Judy Ringel um, for, for those contributions, for the things that didn't make it into this presentation, but really for preserving for history um, and for readers in our congregation, the story of, of this place and the story of this community and the incredible souls. Ra Rabbi Samfield uh, was one of the leading lights, um, brought so much light into a dark world, but our history is, is full of them and, and you really gave voice um, and, and story to them for generations. So we are really indebted to you. Thank you. Can I add something here before we... Please do. Russell, um, you have uh, the yeah. last word. Yes. Rabbi Samfield maintained a, possibly because of her, the experience during the yellow fever, a long time interest in public health. And in the 1890s, he became one of the founders of the first major hospital in Memphis, St. Joseph's which is thought of as a Catholic hospital, but he was one of the three men that are known to have made that happen. 
Hmm. Thank you. And I just want to add, I said you had the last word, but you reminded me of a really important point is that Jewish people, not just Rabbi Samfield, um, but I actually didn't know that. So thank you very much, Russell, for, for sharing that. Um, we're involved in shaping the health history of our city, um, even beyond this epidemic. Um, ben Eastman and um, Elias Lowenstein are among two people on the Board of Health that helped secure a sewer system um, in shortly after the end of this epidemic in 1879. Before this, and actually this, when the germ theory of disease um, was going around, that people actually thought that was the, the filth was the reason why um, we had this epidemic, even though it was the mosquito. But um, people would dump their sewage, their trash, everything into the Gayoso um, River, which flowed between the Mississippi and the Wolf. Um, and ran through the whole city. They, they just fill it up with total filth. Um, and because of the work of, of these two people, uh, Mr. Eastman and Mr. Lowenstein, among others, we now, thank God, have a sewage system um, and so many other things that led, to, led out of this dark time um, and into the future. So thank you all for being here. Those of you here oh. in person, so great to have you back in the building. Um, and to all of you joining us online, um, thank you for being here and happy new year. Shana Tova. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi.